You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash missionlog. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode is also sponsored by HelloFresh. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MissionLog16 and use code MissionLog16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash MissionLog16 and use code MissionLog16 for 16 free meals from America's number one meal kit. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 498, Distant Origin. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we look boldly at the narratives of Star Trek for what we can learn. Are there morals, meanings, and messages that upset the doctrines? Does it all stand the test of time? This week, Distant Origin, the one where we learn that there will have to be a whole new exhibit added to Jurassic Park. I'll be back with trivia in a moment, but first, Norman wants to tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right. Distant Origin was written by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. No surprise there with this prolific team up in Voyager. They originally had a very different idea for this story, though. The inspiration was to see super advanced reptiles with weapons in an action-heavy story. It was Rick Berman who inspired them with the story of Galileo Galilei on trial by the church. Their focus then turned to making this story more of a courtroom drama and less of a lizard versus human shoot 'em up. It was directed by David Livingston, and what can be said about David being the journeyman director that he is, still holding that record of directing more Star Trek than anyone else. He did get to flex some creative muscle here, taking the opportunity to change up the traditional camera angles because we spend so much time with the aliens. Speaking of the aliens, let's meet our guest stars. Pretty much the whole gang of them behind heavy prosthetics as members of the reptilian Voth species. Tova Veer is a young, ambitious scientist played by Christopher Liam Moore. He may not have a ton of credits, but uh, some standouts for sure, with this episode of Voyager appearing early in his career. In later years, he had a recurring role on Judging Amy and then was a series regular in the short-lived 10 Items or Less. We will see him one more time with a return appearance as a different character on Voyager. 
Haluk is a security advisor played by Marshall R. Teague. We have indeed met Marshall before when he was also under heavy prosthetics as a Jem Hadar in the DS9 episode Hippocratic Oath. The lead Voss scientist, Fora Gagan, is played by Henry Warrenich, and we've met him before once, too, as a Klingon in the TNG episode, The Drumhead. If you don't remember, Henry has an extensive background in live theater as an actor and director, part of some of the most prestigious theater companies all over the U.S., but he found time to do plenty of TV guest roles, and we will see him one more time on Voyager, also in a different role. The role of Gagan's daughter is played by Nina Minton, also primarily a stage actor with most of her on-screen roles centered in the late 90s and early 2000s. Finally, the Voth minister, Odala, is played by Concetta Tomei. She grew up in Wisconsin and went into teaching after getting a degree in education. Soon after, though, she moved to Chicago to study theater and very quickly earned another degree, working constantly, and then moved to New York to further expand her career. On-camera roles for Concetta started in the early 80s, with genre appearances all the way from Max Headroom to Deep Impact to the recent Space Force series. As a series regular, though, she is perhaps best known for Providence and earlier co-starring alongside the likes of Robert Picardo in China Beach. So far, this is Concetta's only Star Trek appearance. What's that? You say you have a new theory of evolution and it's your holy grail? The problem is, these reptile people have already got one. Prologue. In a dimly lit cave on a deserted planet, two reptilian beings appear to be searching for something. One of the reptilians discovers a black and yellow uniform in tatters adorned with an oblong golden pin as the other dusts off a cache of skeletal remains. Clicking and chirping in their native language, one of the reptilians calls to his companion to share in the discovery. Using a small and spherical device, the elder of the two reptilians, now speaking in standard human, tells his companion that they have made the most important discovery in Voth history, as he points his flashlight downwards towards a half-unearthed human skull. Act 1. Aboard their own starship, the two reptilian Voth researchers appear to be more than just archaeologists. They have laid the skeletal remains that they found on the planet on a table in such a precise and orderly manner for study, with the banter and conversational back and forth worthy of experts in the scientific fields of archaeology, biology, and paleontology. Based on their genetic research of the remains thus far, the two Voth, especially the Elder, believe that they share a genetic relationship with that which they have designated as an endotherm and a non-saurian. The question in front of them is how this being found its way into the Delta Quadrant. However, their analysis of the uniform remnants suggests several key factors proving that this being was once alive, perhaps on a ship, and belonged to a social infrastructure, perhaps military, and was capable of replication technology. Addressing his assistant as Veer, the Elder Voth believes that they need to mount a sector-wide expedition to locate the ship from where the deceased may have come, and require the backing of their leadership in the Ministry of Elders. Later, on the immensely larger Voth city ship, 
the two Voth scientists present to the head of their ministry of elders the skeletal remains that they have recently discovered as proof of what in their society is known as the distant origin theory, that their race, the Voth, evolved elsewhere in the galaxy thousands of years ago, and that they share 47 genetic markers with an unknown species represented in the remains found on a distant planet. The Supreme Minister Odala is skeptical of Gagan, the elder scientist's claims, and refuses any further funding towards Gagan's research. Even Gagan's own daughter, Frola, is concerned for her father's well-being and status with the Voth scientific community for challenging their current evolutionary doctrine. Gagan, however, is determined to discover the truth and prove his claims about the divine origin theory. And after a thorough study of the uniform fragments, Gagan was able to identify a microscopic identification code, which he believes is the name of the ship where the endotherm alien came from. And with that, both Gagan and Veer strike out on their search for a ship in the Delta Quadrant named Voyager. Act 2. According to Gagan's logs, both he and Veer searched for weeks with little to no success, until they came across a trader from a space station bordering the Necrit Expanse, who told them of a handful of beings similar to those he described from his initial analysis of the remains he discovered earlier. And, with each chance encounter with more spacefaring traders who met with, traded with, or in some way, shape, or form engaged with either the crew of Voyager, every story and detail helped Gagan and Veer redefine their search parameters. And after acquiring a canister of Voyager's warp plasma, Gagan was able to isolate its energy signature, which then shortly after, his ship's scanners was able to identify and match with the ship some 90 light years away. Gagan then ordered Veer to enact their first contact protocols so that they would not contaminate observing Voyager at a distance from the start. Using personalized cloaking technology, Gagan and Veer are able to beam aboard Voyager undetected to observe the crew up close and personal. They remark on such a strong and unexpected mammalian odor before searching out Voyager's main computer terminal to interface with it for more cultural information. And after an educational run-in, watching what they believe is typical mammalian courting behavior between arguing Tom Paris and Bellana Torres, Gagan and Veer make their way to the bridge where they observe to be a matriarchal social structure in place as Janeway is clearly in command of the men around her. However, the Voth cloaking technology is detected by Harry Kim, as Tuvok casts a security net throughout Voyager until they corral Gagan and Veer in the mess hall. But before proper first contact can be made, Veer stuns Chakotay with some kind of dart, and then is stunned unconscious by Tuvok who returns fire. Gagan has no other choice but to transport away with an unconscious Chakotay as his prisoner. Act 3 As Veer is checked out by the EMH, the doctor reports that no serious harm has come to the alien intruder. However, when Janeway begins asking Veer about himself and what happened to Chakotay, Veer drops into some type of deep coma, which the doctor describes as some kind of protective hibernation. In other words, Veer isn't in the talking mood. Meanwhile, on Gagan's cloaked ship, Chakotay comes to and offers an olive branch to Gagan, appealing to the Voth's apparent scientific and intellectual nature. Gagan introduces himself as a molecular paleontologist, and his assistant Veer acted rashly and defensively when they were discovered aboard Voyager. After clearing the air between them, Gagan releases Chakotay from his force field restraint, and the two begin their relationship anew with a proper first contact introduction. Back on Voyager, the doctor, after a thorough examination of Veer's physiology, informs Janeway that the Voth and human species share a remarkable 47 genetic markers, which proves Gagan's theories that the Voth did in fact evolve on Earth. 
Feeding all of the available data into the Holodex computer, Janeway and the EMH extrapolate how the Voth could have evolved from the Hardrosaur of the Cretaceous era into the Voth of the Delta Quadrant, as seen in both Gagan and Veer after the Voth's exodus from Earth over 65 million years ago. On Gagan's ship, a similar conversation is taking place between him and Chakotay. Unfortunately, Gagan confesses that he is racing against the clock to prove his distant origin theory is correct, and that he can't release Chakotay just yet because he is the proof Gagan needs to persuade the Ministry of Elders that humans exist. On Voyager, Tom and Tuvok have been able to unlock the code to use Voth cloaking technology, but perhaps too little too late as the massive Voth city ship locks an energy beam onto Voyager and transports her inside some type of secure internal hangar. Act 4. Trapped inside the massive Voth city ship, Janeway is running out of options as Voyager's power sources are being drained, nullifying shields and weapons, and leaving Voyager defenseless. Janeway then orders the crew to prepare to repel borders. Tuvok and Tom are trying to make their way to the bridge, but encounter resistance from a Voth boarding party who stun Tuvok with a dart and nullify Tom's phaser. Before passing out, Tuvok orders Paris to escape into the nearby Jeffrey's tube. On the bridge, Harry is unable to counteract the Voth's suppression field as several Voth decloak and take control of the ship. Halleck, the lead Voth in charge of securing Voyager, presses Janeway for the whereabouts of Gagan and Veer. Janeway truthfully answers that Gagan escaped to his ship with Chakotay some time ago. While Halleck continues his interrogation, Tom fights his way through engineering, making his way to photon torpedo control. But his efforts are thwarted as the Voth were able to anticipate and nullify his plan to breach the Voth hangar from the inside out. While this is happening, Gagan is informed that he is to surrender to the Ministry and turn over all of his research on the distant origin theory, or else Voyager will be destroyed. Gagan tells Chakotay that he cannot let that kind of blood be on his hands, no matter the personal cost to his life's work. However, Chakotay agrees to be Gagan's living proof and will stand by him in front of the Ministry to help bolster Gagan's case. Act 5 The trial is underway, and at the center of the allegations against Professor Gagan's distant origin theory is his unwritten and unspoken, yet somehow destructive movement against the current evolutionary doctrine of the Voss species as protected by the Ministry of Elders. Gagan relents that the evidence that supports his theory may be incomplete, but he holds fast to the fact that the Voth civilization began on Earth. The minister orders Veer into the proceedings, who then offers testimony that completely undermines Gagan's claims and damages the entirety of their work, work the two have bonded over for years. Gagan knows Veer was pressured into admitting false testimony and how devastating his words were to any hope to persuade the ministry otherwise. Gagan goes as far as accusing the minister of threatening Veer's career and future in order to secure Veer's loyalty in these proceedings. The minister declares once and for all that the Voth doctrine is the truth, that they aren't immigrants from some foreign planet, and that any belief in such nonsense will be severely punished. Chakotay tries to intervene on Gagan's behalf by appealing to how the Voth are truly exemplary as a species through what they have accomplished rather than where they originated. But his words fall on the minister's deaf ears as he challenges Gagan's belief once and for all with one notable difference. She has now placed the lives and fate of Voyager's crew in the balance of Gagan's decision, placing the blood of innocent people in his hands. Knowing he has been maneuvered into a no-win scenario, Gagan reconsiders and retracts all claims of his distant origin theory, promising to never speak of them again. Chakotay and Voyager are to leave Voth space, and also never to be seen from, again. As they take their leave from each other, Chakotay gives Gagan a parting gift, 
a globe of the earth to serve as a reminder to Gagan that hopefully, one day, the Voth will see it for what it means to their people, with eyes open. The end. I see Don Norman, and I hope that, uh, you know, even if everything else is long forgotten, we can remember this moment with a little toy globe that's uh, the perfect size for like some teeny tiny starships to go on that guy's shelf in his collection. Mm. You know? Yeah, it'd be very <laughs> nice. I do have to say, right at the top, I, I like the uh, the location effect again, the, the CG they added to it to kind of dress it up, make it look a little more rugged and scary. Love the callback to basics. And I, on our alien guests. I love the makeup and the click language just to keep mm-hmm. everything looking alien. I also really like how this is one of those stories that if you've been paying attention all along, it's a great callback to, yeah. to see, you know, find that remnant of a Voyager crewman. But if you haven't been paying attention all along it's just a cool new story to follow but i gotta say for those of us who have been paying attention man hogan's bones got picked clean so yeah yeah that is Mm. that was some serious stuff that poor hogan went through i mean i know that chakotay used some of his uniform as solar sails yeah you know right to create his still yeah it was neat to see like a little bit of the uniform. It was mm-hmm. neat to see the Maquis rank pin. I do have a little bit of a nit to pick with the way that they use the alien language in this episode. I have other examples that I'm going to bring up oh, probably okay. a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. But they went from that really interesting clicky kind of sound to all of a sudden talking hand, like standard human. Yeah. I know just for the, you know, the to, to expedite, you know, the language of the episode. But I would have liked to have seen subtitles. That could have been neat. That would have been cool. I mean, look, it, it, no change no language transition will ever be as smooth as the hunt for red october armageddon (laughs) no Mm -hmm. no transition will ever be that cool but it it would have been nice to have seen something kind of creative here with that so yeah i i agree gotta say i love that the alien computer very good at extrapolating from the bones and i love what they get right (laughs) and what they get wrong but that's kind of fun to see as a as a pretense yeah the bone props are neat, mm-hmm. like using the, you know, the opposable thumb. Yeah. That kind of shorthands things, you know, into a mammalian species. Yeah. I, I just thought that whole sequence was just really well done. Also, just laying it out on the table, just kind of like, oh, of course, that's yeah. that's Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> of course. You know? Can't you tell? Yeah. Yeah. Very well done. And I, I love the, the reaction. Just, oh, we're related to endotherms. Gross. Okay, you know? yeah. I do love all the alien sets, the, the Voth set pieces, like the lighted staircase. And just there's a lot of uh, uh, production value in what we got the, from them. I love the city ship. Oh, my God. It's huge. I mean, huge. Yeah. Right. So it's nice to see that they have this scale in their culture of you have this like exploration ship and obviously their technology is advanced, but then you see the big ship that they dock with and you're like, oh, okay, this is something very significant, very profound in the Delta Quadrant. Yeah. Um, not as profound though, John, at seven minutes and six seconds when uh, the Professor Gagan, Professor Gagan says, you know, they share 47 genetic markers. Of course. With the human species. Of course they do. Yeah. Here's a question for you, though. So you can kind of infer how a universal translator can start to put together information. But when they see written language hidden in the serial number of that com badge, how would mm-hmm. they know how to pronounce Voyager? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, here's something that I, I think that I actually laughed out loud when I saw it, like the artist's rendering of yeah. what they're looking for. So you have a humanoid alien mm-hmm. with, you know, the Voyager uniform with Operations Yellow, but with rolled up sleeves or very <laughs> short forearm sleeves. Yes. It's like they're looking for Chief O'Brien or yes. something. Right? Yes. <laughs> I, I thought that too. That that was funny. I, I love that we have another callback to the station at the Necrit expanse i thought that was very cool again it's like if you've been paying attention these are great to complete the build of that universe but even if you haven't it's just like oh okay there's a station that we presume voyager has been to before so that's fine and and i I do love the the touch-up on the rendering of the human because now they are encountering people who have actually met these people so right it's no longer like a humanoid lizard you know, a bipedal, but now yeah. it's a human with human skin tone, right. but still rolled up sleeves. Yep, yep, exactly. And I love even just the detail of the warp plasma. Like, what a way to make that stuff pay off from many, many episodes before. On Gagan's ship, they had that, looks like a lamp mm-hmm. or some type of, you know, lamp type device surrounded by all these flying bugs or gnats it's a snacking station it is it's they're literally like hanging around like having their version of popcorn you know chips exactly i thought that was super neat i was like yeah this is their culture of course they're gonna have that why not great detail right great detail i love the hardware like their scanners are great and they can travel very fast i mean like it's just cool to see aliens who are that much more advanced than we are and just as curious, like how cool mm. to, to give them all these attributes. Speaking of fast technology, very fast at downloading our entire database off of Voyager, <laughs> man. But then the things they get wrong, so much fun, like the courting behavior. Yeah, it is courting behavior, but it, it's funny to see them look at that as outsiders. They're not wrong. They're not because, wrong. They, know, they're wrong about yeah. some things. But like, well, why, why aren't they vasodilated? Well, they you know yeah. could be at some point. Yeah. But okay, so there's there's something about uh, the conceit of them being in interphasic space, being cloaked. Yeah. So shouldn't Tom and Bellana be able to walk through them as opposed to consciously like walking around them, knowing that they're not there? Oh, I mean, the actors know yeah. that they're there. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. And and the actors can't make sightline with those characters, even though they're blocked in the same scene together. So no matter how close Robbie got to moving around Gagan and Veer, he knows that he can't get too close, or their their uniforms or their clothing will rub up against each other and break that illusion. But they're they said that they're you know cloaked in some type of interdimensional spatial phase. Yeah. So right. they should be able to be intangible, really. Very true. Right? Very true. But that's also a production budget, that special effects budget that you just can't yeah. always spend for. Yeah. So here's the thing about language in this episode that's a little hit or miss. When Gagan and Veer are discovered, they start automatically chirping and clicking. Yeah. But we've seen aliens discovered by Voyager before, like when they pop up on the view screen, and the universal translator immediately translates language. Right. Why not now? Right, right. Or, mm. I, you know, another way to take that, of course, then you don't have the dramatic scene of what, what happens with them having that confrontation. But the other way to do it that could be fun is, okay, Gagan and Veer have had time to study 
human culture Voyager's database and put together some information. But again, they could have gotten that wrong. And if they had a prepared statement or a prepared translation of their own, they could have just gotten that entirely wrong once they got discovered and tried to communicate with them but couldn't. No kill. I would have. That would have worked. Perfect place right. for that. Yeah. Little throwback. You yeah. know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the doctors um, with the EMH is scanning Veer just to make sure that Veer is okay, do they always store that information like in Voyager's like medical database or do they, are they just scanning just to make sure that the alien's not dead or what do they do with that information? <laughs> I, I think you'd have to hold on to it forever and ever, you know, and then you make That's a backup thinking. of the backup. I think you have to. Yeah. Nice bit of detail uh, when Chakotay is on Gagan ship, and he you know he's in the the force field restraint. You can actually see a small puncture wound yes. on his uniform. I'm like, okay, yeah. I like that kind of detail. That's that's super smart. And again, I have to bring up the language thing. So, if Chakotay's <laughs> com badge is inoperative, how does he understand Gagan when Gagan's talking to him? Right. Or is the universal translator working regardless? I just need to know. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you working, would think that you know? it would have to have a, you know, some sort of connection back to Voyager's computer or something. It can't do all of that on board. But then maybe Gagan's system has some sort of translation built in. I mean, they were pretty good about figuring stuff out, and they've got much more advanced technology than we do. So maybe maybe what we're hearing is Gagan's universal translator rather than Chakotay's non-working combat translate. I don't know. It could. Be. It would have been in, like a very interesting small scene where you know when they translated Voyager, like Veer said, "How did you figure that out?" And he's like, "You know, I uh, I was able to extrapolate a database of primitive language." Yeah, and then you know that's yeah all. Yeah, yeah yeah something really something good. very basic. Yeah. I, I do have to say that that first contact moment between Chicote and Gagan very good because they they are at odds, but then very quickly yeah. warm up to each other about why they're there and what their common goals are. It was very cool, and and I did have to wonder like it by drawing these connections like are we referring back to like the tng episode the chase where the okay okay yeah. all right and there's yeah. another one too that i i, I think we'll will come up with in a in a second here interesting holodeck scene okay we have the Ariops and the hadrosaur i like the use of the holodeck to look at animals of prehistory. It's a cool way to be able to visualize that stuff. I do think that asking the computer to extrapolate 65 million years of evolution may be a step too far. <laughs> that might just be, here, take that and and move it up 65 million years. How, I, I, how would the, there's no way that it would know, but I guess we got to give them that. But I, I did like how they were able to use it to give like themselves models to work with and yes. you know just to be able to at least visually show for like the audience's sake like oh oh it's close it's not quite there but it's really really close yes yeah, exactly yeah and, and i did originally think that that was cg but it's not they actually built physical models and then composited them into the shots but all that very convincing really well done all right one more tng connection they use the phrase very often here, eyes open. Mm-hmm. D- does Gagan speak to Marion? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Joe Minoski wrote Darmok. 
And he wrote this one too. Now, are, are we maybe could we infer that the Tamarians, who are also a bit reptilian, uh, could they be disrelated? Because again, go back to the chase, and you've got another species just dropping humanoids everywhere. So maybe there's a little connection there. Yeah, I like that, and I like that that could have also been a way to get around some of the language. Yeah, that was the issue. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And here's the thing: I know that these Saurians, that that Saurian with a with a little s, because they are from dinosaurs, but uh, mm-hmm. with a capital S, you know, do they know anything about brandy? Because come on, there's another connection for us there. I always go into their brandy, you know, stores with eyes open. With eyes open, you have to. You have to. Yeah. Now, uh, back to their cool technology again. I, I like that we're playing with their technology, like that personal cloaking device, but it makes me wonder, do they get to hang on to this? Do, do, you know, like here's Tom and Tuvok checking out their cool interface right. cloak. Could Can't our computer just scan that and make a bunch more? Because it seems like that would come in very handy between now and, I don't know, when you get back to Earth. You know, could be. Maybe they lost track of the Apple. Maybe. <laughs> like, you know. it really works. It works so well, we can't find that Apple <laughs> find <it> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought it was a very cool effect to see Voyager beamed into another yep. ship. Like, they absolutely sold the scale and the advanced technology. Very cool. But when the Haluk and his security team, when they boarded Voyager, they started doing the alien chirpy clicky language again. Yeah. You would think that would have been figured out by now. I'm, I know that I'm really fixated on it, but it's just something that didn't sit well with me in this episode. No, I get it because you, you've got to decide when, uh, purposefully, when you're going to have that language and why, and then when we're going to understand them and why. So right. if you're playing kind of fast and loose with it. I got my own time code here, 2910, that very Batman-esque Dutch angle shot. I could just yeah. picture David Livingston and Marvin Rush coming up with that. Because it's interesting to note that David said that he wanted to use all the fisheye and extreme angles on the aliens because you've got the freedom to do that, particularly with the extreme makeup and the, the dramatic intensity of what's going there. It's not a thing you typically do with your human characters because it's so distracting but they really went for it on that one shot of the voyager crew standing there armed to the teeth and then turn the camera with them very cool so my last note about the language i swear (laughs) right but we go from the you know the security team the vaught security team speaking in their language and then you know then neutralizing tom and tuvok and then taking the bridge but then speaking human standard to Janeway and to Harry, oh. telling them to stand down. Oh, yeah. I'm like, which is it going to be, right? Because they also make reference to the Voyager, not just Voyager, but to the, the Voyager, Voyager from here on out. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, and I'm not sure if, if Gagan said that about the, the translation that he had, you know, from the Maquis pen earlier. I think he said Voyager, when he said, this is the name that we're looking for. But from here on out, they always re- referred to Voyager as the Voyager. Ah, uh, very cool. That, that's Which nice. Is a yeah. Interesting. I know that we're going to get into the morals, meanings, messages, but there's a lot of great lines as we get into the closing act of this. The data isn't in question. Your interpretation is yeah. hardcore stuff coming there. And then Veer, oh, Veer, you sell out. 
mean, you, you, you disappointed me so much here. But it was a really nice turn to see Gagan really try to get some backbone here, but then being shot down with a great bit of alien language. Your true scales are finally showing. <laughs> I mean, nice turn of phrase there, Joe Minoski and or Brandon Braga. Have you ever gotten involved or really engrossed in an episode where you yourself are in the same position as kind of like, say, Gagan was? Like, So mm. I'm just referring to Gagan's gaslighting was so complete yeah. that even I was like, am I, am I back in the wrong horse here? Yeah, right. Right. And right. Did, did I make a mistake? Is yeah. my logic flawed? Yeah. I thought that when that happened, wow, that was a moment. It was definitely a moment. Um, but I love that we get some just very classic Trek dialogue between Chakotay and, you know, confronting the Saurian minister or the Voth minister. I, I mean, it, it's kind of like he got his own Kirk speech finally. And it's a oh, yeah. great turn of phrase. It's so good. Chakotay or more to the point, Robert Beltran rarely gets these moments. Mm -hmm. And when he does, it, it really shows how good of an actor he really is, right? I think that in this final scene, this final act, Act 5, when he's giving his soliloquies, when he's having these Kirk moments, maybe some of the best stuff that I've seen him do so far mm -hmm. in Voyager. It's really, really good. I think really. so, too, yeah. And, and I yeah. love just pinning it right to her. But finding the positive thing in what they see as so negative – saying, you know, you deny your origins on Earth and you deny your true heritage and the, the, the strength and the place that these people, your people, came from. Ah, it's just, it, it's so good and he delivered it perfectly. I love the gift of the globe at the end. It's just, it's kind of, you know, innocuous, but at the same time, though, at the right point and right time, that could be the change of something. Just looking at it on a shelf or as a gift that he gives to the, maybe veer to reconcile the relationship that, you know, that's been severed. That globe that Chakotay gives Gagan is like, it's a symbol. I love that it's a symbol of what could be. I hope it is, man, because otherwise I'm, I'm just going to be devastated by what is otherwise a very tragic ending. I wasn't expecting the Reptile Inquisition to take over this episode, but nobody expects the Reptile Inquisition. We'll get right back to Distant Origin after a word from this week's sponsors, ExpressVPN and HelloFresh. You know, Norman, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like, it's like this. It's like passing a note in class Ooh. and having the teacher read it mm -hmm. aloud to everyone. Oh, no. Everybody, the, everybody <laughs> knows your secrets. They know about your secret crush on Stacy's mom. They know about the whole thing. Yeah. Right? Have you? I, I, I had that done to me as a kid and, but i especially remember it happening to other people and it's it, that that's just the most embarrassing thing i don't need that in my life no. certainly not as an adult you know john you know what would have saved you that kind of embarrassment what's that express vpn that's what <laughs> if, if it was like a literal express vpn for when i was in eighth grade passing notes that's that's what I need. That's exactly what everyone needs. So uh, that's a great question. Yes. Why does everyone need a VPN? Yeah. Well, because if you don't know this, internet service providers know every single website you visit. It's just like all the dirty laundry oh. being aired about your secret crush. Yeah. You don't you don't need that yeah. air dirtied or any other wise out in the open you know uh isps can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who then can use your data to target you that's 
that's the note interception that you don't want. Is it like, like it's twofold? It, it's embarrassing and it's profitable for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> this is the worst combination, you know? So why, why would one use ExpressVPN? Well, I can tell you why I use it and I can tell you why Norman uses it. Uh, ExpressVPN reroutes your network data through a secure encrypted tunnel so your ISP can't see or sell your online activity. And it's simple to use. You literally just fire up the app, click a button, and you are done. That app has been rated number one by CNET and TechRadar, and it works on phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. So protect your online privacy today by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash mission log. Norman and dear listeners, you might be asking yourselves, what is HelloFresh? Well, we're here to tell you. HelloFresh mm-hmm. allows you to get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So you can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and drumroll, please, affordable. And that, mm-hmm. all of those reasons, are why it is America's number one meal kit. Here are a couple other really good reasons why it's America's number one meal kit. So you want to you wanna start your summer off right. You know, you want to make know sure that you're... Yeah. I do too. And we all love eating. We love summer barbecues, you know, making food for like large groups of people, but it doesn't mean you don't have to eat well. I mean, you can eat well and be responsible. And that's what HelloFresh helps you do. They have calorie smart and protein smart lunch and dinner options, plus new vegan recipes too, which I really do enjoy. You get farm to table quality with every HelloFresh box. HelloFresh's seasonal ingredients are picked at peak ripeness. And travel from the farm to your doorstep in less than seven days for fresh flavor in every bite. That's what you want. I, I love that. That's awesome. I love that that speed, that convenience. It's got it's the whole package. Now this summer you can spend less time meal planning and prepping with HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients that make it easy for you to get cooking quick. HelloFresh is more convenient than grocery store shopping, but did you know that it's cheaper too? It's also 25% less expensive than takeout. And let me tell you, that can certainly add up. So, Norman, let me tell you what I've been doing. A couple of real standout meals that I had from HelloFresh. I did a panko-crusted chicken with pesto that was awesome. But but the real winner in my book, there were these Moroccan spiced pork patties uh, with roasted mm. vegetables. I mean, knockout. So, so good. So flavorful. And it got me really motivated, you know, to... To be cooking more at home, which is always a good thing to do, and learning and kind of brushing up, refreshing on techniques. So exactly. uh, it's a win-win all the way across. Right. Yeah. And y- you know what we weren't missing? We weren't missing all of these half or barely used jars of spices or ingredients. Yes. That's what I love. Yes. Right? Use it all. Yeah. It's efficient. It's clean. Yes. That's such a good, yeah. good thing to have. And you don't have to worry about, oh, my gosh, I forgot something at the grocery store. I got to go to the grocery store again. That's time lost. That's money lost. That's gas lost. You don't need any of that. So skip those trips to the grocery stores, right? Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and, and, and affordable. Yes. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MissionLog16 and use code MissionLog16 
for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash MissionLog16 and use code MissionLog16 for 16 free meals from America's number one meal kit. Uh, Norman, have you ever heard of the Nasarima? N-A-C-I-R-E-M-A. Not familiar to me, no. It, it is a, it's not a real place. They are not a real people, but it, it is rather a construct uh, usually done if you're like a first-year anthropology student. And if you take Nasarima and you read it backwards, mm. uh, you, you see what that says? American. Yes, yes. So it's this idea. I read that this happened to me and my like one of my early like freshman anthropology classes where you get this description of people with these very strange customs, like these really odd things that just don't make any sense at all. And you read and go, wow, this culture is really messed up. And then you realize, <laughs> wait, it's us only as written from the point of view of an alien. You know, So it's just the idea to get people to kind of get rid of their own preconceptions about what rituals mean what uh, and applying their own values on top of the study of another group. Mm. So I kind of go back to something you mentioned in the last segment that it's really – it's so wonderful. First of all, it's wonderful to see this much time given over to getting to know our alien guest stars. We don't see Voyager until well into the second act. And I love that. And I particularly love that we get to meet these aliens in a similar place where we are. Curious scientists, explorers, just trying to get to the bottom of the truth and, and learn something about the universe around them. And it is great to see the things they get right and the things they get wrong. Like the courting behavior is cute. It's cute that they would pick up on that. But then it's sort of like then they come up to the bridge and they say, you know, all these males uh, are, you know, deferential to the female. This must be a matriarchal society. And, you know, it's a we, we hope that in the 24th century we are much more egalitarian than we are now. But certainly in 1997 watching this, people in the audience had to say, oh, nope, we're not there yet. <laughs> But it is very cool for a show like this to be able to hold up a mirror to all of us. Like I think that. one of the things that makes this episode successful, at least for me, mm-hmm. and, I, and I hope it is for a lot of people, I hope it is for you, but there's this almost kind of like this acceptance that you have to treat Gagan and Veer as us, as opposed to you yeah. know um, yeah. some type of outlandish alien race that's could never possibly exist in the permutations of evolution of ever, right? So Mm. they need to be very relatable in order to be sympathetic, you know, in order to believe in their cause. So I like that we kind of wholesale buy into that they have the same type of observational structures that we would have as archaeologists, scientists, biologists, researchers, you know, to pick apart and study and codify and organize and label all the things that they're finding so fascinating about humanity. I mean, when you use like phrases like, um, what did he, he introduced uh, himself to Chakotay as a molecular paleontologist. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. 
even if that were the case, even if in their society that's true, you still have to, you know, would the universal translator translate that in the right way and with the right sentiment, right. you know? So all of these things, right. in order for this episode to work, you have to believe wholesale that these people or this race is just basically us proven by the distant origin theory, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, exactly. here's the big question though. If that is true, and there is that theory that somewhere out there, you know, the the odds are there's going to be a race or other races or a species or similar that it... Wait, far amongst the stars, there there are brothers of man um, who even now fight to serve... Somewhere wait, beyond... Different, different yeah. show. Okay. But, you know, but, but they're <laughs> yeah. there, and that means somewhere along the line, they developed somewhat resembling us so that they would have these yeah. kind of details in their in the, in their society like you know these political strata you know like these different yeah it's, it's hard for me to explain you know what i'm trying to say i i do and, and i think though what uh, i mean first of all it's science fiction at star trek so there's a lot of that we just kind of have to swallow yeah. anyway but i guess the other thing is we happen to run into one of these species where that worked out what we're not running into is the species, the multiple millions of species potentially where that didn't work out, where they failed, where they became extinct, or where their hierarchical or political structure didn't work. So they didn't survive long enough to get out into the stars and to be able to study themselves in the universe the way that we do and the way that they do. So it's more by happenstance that we have a very small selection group here <laughs> we, we we just have the ones who made it because otherwise in the delta quadrant we've run into species that are mostly not as advanced as voyager with some rare exceptions but but this is really the biggest exception where they have gotten the head start on their own evolution and their adoption of technology. So they've really had the time to, uh, to go. And maybe that just happens to be one of the hierarchies and political and social structures that actually really works for them so that they could thrive. So yeah, we, we got lucky in an unlucky way. So because of their evolutionary process, they were able to become intelligent enough to formulate, well, I should say that some, like Gagan, were able to formulate this mm -hmm. distant origin theory. If that's the case, other advanced you know, races or societies, would they have their own distant origin theories as well? Maybe. You know? Maybe. I'm using the chase as the yeah. example. Right, right. And, and look, and I still don't love as an idea but but maybe i'll save that for my uh my my final comments here i might be able to give this episode a little bit of a pass even though that's a it's a concept that i don't really love in my science fiction but you know even i can bend in some of my own criticisms here i i do want to talk about what is central to the idea central to the the discussion and the conflict in this episode and that is the the minister versus gagan and the tiny, tiny part of me that sides with what she is saying is that we do absolutely have to question our conclusions. Part of the process of science is that you come up with a theory and then you take everything you've got to try to dismantle that theory, to try to knock it down. And only if it survives – 
do you know then that your theory is correct? Your model is correct. And yeah, this is only, you know, what, a 45-minute episode of television, so we can't go too deeply into it. Gagan does come up with this idea. He has got some evidence to support his idea, but also what he needs to do is invite any possible differing opinion that says, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you corrected for this? Because his theory won't stand up unless he has absolutely put it through the ringer. At the same time, what I love is the competing argument to that is that you have to accept and you have to follow evidence in a dispassionate way wherever it takes you, even when and especially if it doesn't align with what your predetermined outcome should be. I think the issue here with the minister, it's not so much that I don't think that she is um, she discounts Gagan's claims. It's how she uses her authority to have the ultimate authority over what is and what isn't in their society. She challenges him to the burden of proof is on Gagan, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And he has probably one of the most pivotal um, examples, you know, to prove his theory is correct with Chakotay and Voyager, you know, as testimony and witnesses and evidence, you know, to his claim. And even in front of the minister, the minister is reluctant to even hear the testimony by yeah. Chakotay himself to the point where she says, either you're going to refute this or you and those around you are going to suffer. Now, that's pretty, yeah. you know. Oh, don't get yeah. me wrong. She 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 is straight up bad guy. Yeah. Don't, don't get me yeah. wrong. She is straight up the bad guy. And her reluctance, her anger about hearing any sort of dissenting opinion that is a threat to her power and a threat to the social order and the hierarchical order that they have, absolutely, she, she will quash that with, every fiber of her being where she is wrong is not inviting the pursuit of more evidence at hundred percent. The only place that I would give her some leeway is say, you are right in that you should challenge your best scientists to say, is your conclusion right? Have you followed the evidence correctly? Because here are a hundred other ways to look at the evidence that you have. You have to then do the, the next step, the even harder work to make sure that your theory stands up to all these other interpretations. Um, and you can only get there, though, through honest and open experimentation. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that we got to that point in their conversation where, say, Odala, the minister, and Gagan, maybe at one point in time they were allies. Maybe at one point in time she even kind of like mm. pushed him in the direction and said, like, we really need for you to find this you know, to legitimize our claim in the universe as the Voth, the new species, and, you know, how we've reached ourselves and, you know, reached into the stars. Because Chakotay, you know, he discovered all of that about the Voth. And, you know, in his closing yeah. argument, he's like, it's not about where you came from. It's like, look what you, it's about where you have gone since then, right? Oh, yeah. And, and Odala tips her hand many, many times. But the, the anger, the vitriol where she says, we are not immigrants. Yeah. Oh, man, that that had to have... 
that had to have played in a difficult way then. It certainly rings different nowadays. It certainly has a a loaded way of getting to the heart of where the problem is today, too. Uh, I, I found that to be very powerful. Well, I mean, there's an issue of what I'd like to say. There's willful ignorance, you know, in the Voth culture. Gagan said that he's come up mm-hmm. against this before. I want to quote him saying that, you know, uh, I failed. This is earlier on when he's trying to find a way to present his case, you know, with the evidence that they found on on the planet where, where Hogan's remains were. You know, he said that I failed to anticipate the level of ignorance I would be facing with the ministry. Uh, I can't help but remark on this considering the almost inconceivable consistency there is between science and the status quo. Um, see, that, th- these are my words. Yeah. The question is how those in power, even if they believe that what the science presents is true, will summarily ignore and even bury said science and prove to preserve their version of order and stability. That's Odala in this case. It's, yeah. Where does that happen in the course of their society where they know that they have, you know, they've evolved from somewhere, but yeah. they have to basically draw their line in the sand and say, we are not what you think we are. We're not immigrants, but at the same time, though, we have no planet to call our own. They're on a ship. They were on a city ship floating around space. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> right? so interesting, right? I mean, they have all this power. They have all this technology. They have, by all indications, a functional society. But yet there's, there's some place where it has just become accepted fact that anything that challenges that challenges the seat of power brings the whole thing crumbling down. And and it is so great to see Chicote challenge that to say, no, 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 the, the knowledge is just the knowledge. Like what you do with it and how you interpret that is important because I interpret it as you came from something challenging and you overcame it. And you got to be this great culture because of the things that you overcame. But to her, she says, I see a race with no birthright, no legacy. So there's something more important to Adala and presumably baked into this culture that is the Voth that says it's not just what we've achieved. It's who we can think of ourselves as. It's this sort of this myth that we tell ourselves about who we are. And and that becomes an incredibly scary political proposition to have. See also white supremacy. (laughs) See also any number of racially charged, bigoted positions to take that says, no, it it has nothing to do with with, with what we as humans together accomplish. It has to do with what we say is, as you just described it, this, this line that you draw that says, well, we all share this one thing that is based on a place that we're from or a particular origin story that we have decided to share. And that then takes precedence over what we can actually accomplish. That, my friend, is the road to hell. I mean, that that is exactly why we face historically and currently so many absolutely awful, misguided positions that drive people to think that they are owed that, that they are owed and have a right to that kind of power over other people. Here's something that I I know that's probably not a point to make, you know, specifically, especially, you know, with you know, these these greater points that we're talking about with the distant origin theory and the way that the truth mm-hmm. is being manipulated, you know, by the ministry. But 
on the B kind of side of the story, you know, or on the underlying side of the story, you have Gagan and Veer going through the Netricate Expanse, finding all these different, like, artifacts, you know, the communicator, you know, the warp plasma uh, a jar and, you know, the tricorder and things that, like, link, you know, the kind of like the, the trail of breadcrumbs to Voyager. Is that any kind of technological contamination that's happening in the Delta Quadrant from Voyager because Starfleet shouldn't be there? You know, they're leaving behind mm. technology everywhere, right? So, yeah. <laughs> like, from, say, let, let's start yeah. all the way back to Caretaker and the, you know, the, the, the water uh, replicators that they gave to the uh, Ocompans, you know, with, uh, as, as a sign, or, well, not the water replicators, but, you know, like, just the water supply. The gifts of the, the water that was replicated so that they could make peace with the Kazon on the Ocompan homeworld, that was left behind. The technology mm-hmm. that the Kazon stole, that was left behind somewhere. The stuff that, you know, any of the technology that uh, Seska absconded with and gave to um, Kulla, that's all left behind somewhere. So there's Starfleet technology all over the Delta Quadrant that's not supposed to be there. That's yeah. kind of like the, you know, it's like stepping on the butterfly, right? The butterfly effect in oh, the Delta I- Quadrant. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is why we kind of have to come back to the idea of like the prime directive being a a very important guideline, but something that is on a granular level almost impossible to actually adhere to in a very orthodox way. I, I just I, I don't think you could just by virtue of the fact that there are starships that are out there exploring the galaxy and using the technology that they use. The observer effect fully comes into fruition there just by virtue of the fact that they are out there and observing. I, I mean, I, I even thought of it this way. You, you know, Voss scientists here are doing what Starfleet has done over and over again, like trying to show up and explore a less evolved culture and trying to not leave a footprint. And yet they do because they can't help it because no system is perfect when it comes to that. Uh, But yeah, I mean, here you think that, well, uh, Hogan got eaten. I guess we'll never see him again because we don't want to go in the cave where that giant reptile thing was. And this planet is... It's so underdeveloped anyway, it would take a long time for those uh, cavemen and women to, you know, discover that technology. It'll probably be long gone before they do, but some other explorer comes around and then they start following the breadcrumbs as he did here. It's a problem. Never mind Baxter. Hogan almost toppled an entire society and he's so dead he wouldn't boom if you put 4,000 volts through him. All right, Norman, we made it. We explored our distant origin and we have arrived here at the end of the show where we get to pick apart uh, whether there are any morals, messages, and meanings to be found and whether or not the whole thing stands the test of time. So, Norman, you tell me, does distant origin stand the test of time. I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, kind of like hyperbolic when I say this, but about a billion percent it does. <laughs> That's it. Like, give or take a couple of percentage Yeah, I know. Points, just, just, right? a, yeah, yeah. just a few decimal points. 0.47, yeah. I should say. Um, yes. To make, a, to make a, a very fine point on this. So this episode mm-hmm. was aired on April 30th, 1997. Okay. Mm-hmm. And for me, after watching this, this episode is more relevant today 
than I think has probably ever been before. Maybe in its airing, maybe it's in the entirety between then and now. Now, we've been critical about season three. Season three has so far have had a lot of hits, um, more misses than hits, I should say. Has some very significant. Yeah, uh, particularly the back half. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. with the exception of Unity, I think that this is probably right up there with one of my favorites, if not my favorite episodes of Voyager to date. You know, and yeah. I, I think it's because what this episode does is what Star Trek does best. It takes an alien culture, an alien species, alien belief systems, and tells this allegorical story to, um, to kind of like point the finger at us. You know, to point the finger, uh, and in this case, um, point at the argument of the war between science and authority. It is probably one of the most, you know, perennial arguments in the history of humanity, right? So, and it's about the struggle of might and that might making the right, you know, and the power of that might being able to gaslight the truth. And this is a war. Right. This is a battle that has gone on since I think uh, ever since people had an opinion. You know, there is the side of the righteousness. Maybe this is you know represented with Gagan. You know, he is the side of truth and the side of science and the side of you know intellect and the side of reason and the side of discovery. But then you also have the side that is the complete opposite of that. But that side has more power, and that side has more resources, and that side has more. Um, the ability to manipulate the greater population to believe that their side is right and true and just. So that is something that kind of translates into more real time. And I think that's very significant when it comes to, again, Star Trek being what, um, what it does best. You know, it tells the story of a time in a way where you can relate to it at the time you're watching it or at the time in the future, you know, which is, from this, uh, when it was aired 30 years from, from like what, 1997. So does this sound familiar to you? You have say those in power who deny science, deny facts, deny proof at every turn, because they know that if the public is informed or is educated or given the process to, you know, to understand information and think for themselves and the threat against the status quo would be real. And those who hold positions of power and wealth would be at the risk of being overthrown or worse. Let me put it in this way. Like Kirk said to Spock at the end of Mirror Mirror, in every revolution, there's one man with a vision. And in this episode, it still may be Gagan. And Chakotay's globe could one day be the reminder that the ministry can't suppress the truth forever. He might be able to reclaim, you know, what he was doing in this episode at some other given point in time, but not right now. I sure hope so. Because, yeah, truth can't be repressed or suppressed forever um gagan may not be the one but maybe the opportunity will be right for somebody so i hope that certainly is the case because it it is tragic it's so tragic to see veer be the sellout it's tragic to see gagan kind of put into his place and decide that well you know probably a very realistic reaction better to live to see another day and protect these people who he also has a vested interest in them getting out of there and making their way home um, than to be responsible for potentially their deaths. So it's an impossible situation to be in, but the truth is still the truth. 
it still exists, and it exists hopefully for somebody to uncover um, when it would be either better received or the the balance of power has tipped another way. As far as this episode holding up, yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I mean, I there were so many moments that I got excited about this story. I love that we have an episode here that has multiple points of follow-up and consequence and connection to what we have seen in the Delta Quadrant so far. But from a different point of view, I love it when Star Trek can break its own mold like it did here. I love that this episode from the beginning is about adherence to the scientific process, but from, again, this very different point of view. We get to turn that mirror back on ourselves, and this is what sci-fi is all about. It's about allowing ourselves to see ourselves through someone else's eyes. Technically, there's such a great job on the makeup here. There's a great job in in letting us sit with these aliens for a while before we even see our familiar crew. Like I mentioned in the last segment, I like seeing the tables turned on the Voyager crew because, you know, let's face it, Starfleet will just barge in wherever, drop into a new place, disrupt it. And then say, oh, hey, we're just explorers. <laughs> you know, now now they get a taste of being on the receiving end of that. In the very best sense, this episode could have been TOS or TNG. It, because you could just fill in those characters with our crew, with a different crew, and it would still work. I Also, I want to make another parallel here, another connection thematically. This story has a big bit of Planet of the Apes. I don't know if Brandon or Joe thought about it, but, but think about this. I mean, the same way that Dr. Zayas doesn't want the truth to escape, that man was once an evolved creature with language and technology, the, the way that they abide by the lawgiver's sacred scrolls, that's the level of paranoia among these evolved dinosaurs. Now, like I, I did mention before that I don't love it when we rewrite history, but I think I'm a lot better with it when it's a situation where we've got something that is so old, you know, by, by tens of millions of years and so distant that it doesn't just rewrite human history. It's not like we're redoing tattoo here, mm-hmm. you know? So I have a lot less of a problem with it. So th- this is just, it's a terrific episode. It, it, it's an old school sci-fi story. It's an old school Trek episode in its way. It, it just works. And, and dramatically, it's so well told. Absolutely. I, I think this is one of the highlights of not just season three, but of Voyager so far. But what did, what did we learn, Norman? Any morals, meanings, messages here to take away? Well, I mean, I think that you kind of hinted at it, uh, you know, in your, in your recap there where you're talking about the fight for truth. And that's what I got. The fight for truth never ends. You know, that's, I, you know it's, it's, it's seen here in this episode. It's seen in so many episodes of Star Trek. And I think these are great examples of, again, like an episode or episodes being able to be these allegorical tales of how things work or how they represent the fight of, you know, certain things in society that are happening today. I want to quote Chakotay here um, in, you know, one of his few but very fine soliloquies. He says, I know from the history of my own planet that change is difficult. New ideas are often greeted with skepticism, even fear, but sometimes those ideas are accepted. And when they are, progress is made. And like Gagan and Chakotay say at the end, 
to each other, eyes are opened. I mean, I know that sounds very Tamaranian, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very good, it's a very good sentiment to land on. The question is, what are we willing to sacrifice in order for the truth to survive? You know, is, or is like, say, our version of the Voth ministry here on earth just too powerful? Is that power too influential? Is it too insidious when it comes to the suppression of not just a truth, but truths, plural, right? What are our leaders willing to sacrifice in order for humanity to move forward as one race? When, if ever, are we going to be able to achieve that moment when those who fight for the truth, right, those who fight with facts and science on their side, can overcome the gaslighting of the population at large so that we can begin building a future based on the Roddenberry version of humanity, where we have reached the stars because we've finally shed these petty differences and these invisible lines that continue to divide us in the here and now. So that's, I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but at the same time, though, it goes in line with, then again, here is the continuation of that fight for truth, you know? So yeah. that's, that's what I got from this, John, and I'm, I'm excited to see what you did. Well, we're, we're close. We're closely aligned here uh, because I thought, you know, there's another way to tell the story where there is a happy ending, where we want this species to accept the truth and to grow from it. But Star Trek and this episode in particular is doing this clever thing again, where the Voyager crew is us in our best idealized version of ourselves. The Voth are also us. And, and that's the hard truth to swallow here, because it, as you've just said about moving forward as one race, the human race, if we can't find unity, even among our own species, then how can we expect to find common ground in unity when we meet, when we meet other species? That, that's what the Voth are facing here, and they would so rather hold on to that power— than to accept the idea that they can be part of a bigger universe. That is the tragically believable part about the position that they're in. And, you know, look, Adala is painted to be the bad guy that she is by slamming the heresy against doctrine. That, that is so bonk bonk on the head, and yet I love it. To me, it is always about following evidence to its conclusion, no matter how upsetting to your beliefs that may be. Um, and I love Chakotay pushing back. I, I love Chakotay saying to Adala, aren't you guilty of the same charge? How you think about yourselves and your place in the universe, that is on trial. And it should be on trial. It should be on trial for them, just as they are a reflection of us. That should be a question for us. I know that I've mentioned it before on Mission Log probably a long time ago. And for those of you who have listened for a long time, you've heard me say it before. But it, it fits so perfectly here as well that I cannot help but think of that one line that, that I quoted before and so often from Thomas Jefferson's letter to his nephew, Peter Carr, about education 
and about this path that Peter is setting up for himself in his studies. And it's about sort of the, the nature and purpose of education. And it's only this short line. You can look it up and read the whole context for yourself, but it's only this short line that he says that is so bold, for lack of a better word, for that time and for now as well. He says to Peter, question with boldness even the existence of God, because if there be one, he must more approve of the homage of reason than of blindfolded fear. Blindfolded fear, that is what's driving the Voth in this story. That is what drives so many people to not follow evidence, to not question boldly the things that are in front of them. And that is what holds an entire species back and, and will in the tragic story of this. But Norman, I, I, I'm going to try to be optimistic with you that, that maybe, just maybe, Gagan's words will finally be heard. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Displaced. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I am impressed with the lack of outtakes resulting from repeated use of the term city ship. You try saying it ten times fast, or, on second thought, don't. It is a very silly place. And transmission. City ship, 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 city ship. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.